You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Jill Aileen Smith joins us for a chat about ancient history, writing biblical fiction, and her latest release, Daughter of Eden. For today's Pinch of the Past, we are looking at Lucy Goodell Thurston, the first female missionary to the Hawaiian Islands in the early 1800s. Christy Kay brings us today's bookworm review of The Mistletoe Countess by Pepper Basham. For giveaways, we've just awarded The Rose and the Thistle by Laura Franz. Also have the winner for the giveaway from Patricia Raybon with her newest release, Double the Lies. So check your email inboxes as I have just sent out those emails for those winners. Now, as it just so happens, I was unable to join Jill and Darcy for the interview. I was at the Oregon Christian Writers Spring Conference, and I'll have more news on that at the end of the episode. Jill Eileen Smith is the best-selling and award-winning author of the biblical fiction series, The Wives of King David, Wives of the Patriarchs, and Daughters of the Promised Land, as well as The Heart of a King, Star of Persia, Esther's Story, Miriam's Song, The Prince and the Prodigal, and Daughter of Eden, Eve's Story. She is also the author of the nonfiction books, When Life Doesn't Match Your Dreams, and She Walked Before Us. Her research has taken her from the Bible to Israel, and she particularly enjoys learning how women lived in biblical times. When she isn't writing, she loves to spend time with her family and friends, read stories that take her away, ride her bike, snag date nights with her hubby, try out new restaurants, or hug her lovable cats, Cody and Kaylee. She lives with her family in in Southeast Michigan. Jill Eileen Smith, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you for having me. Well, before we dive into talking about your latest book, let's start with something fun. Your bio mentions you enjoy trying new restaurants. So tell us about one you visited and enjoyed recently. Well, a new restaurant to us, we, we moved out to a new area a year, almost a year ago. And so we've tried a few restaurants out here, but the one that I picked was actually in Oregon. Because we were there in November, and one of the nights we went out, my, just my husband and I went out to dinner at a, I think it was Italian, and I think it was Pastini, but I'm not remembering exactly perfectly the name of the restaurant, but it was fun. It was good food. Do you like trying international food? No, actually, I have a kind of picky diet, and since I got back, I've had to go a little bit restrictive, so it's difficult to find menus in typical restaurants that have the food, especially like gluten-free would be an example. So my choices are restricted, and so no, I don't get to enjoy as many choices as I used to, but that isn't going to stop me from enjoying life and trying new things. So It does make it harder when you have those restrictions, but It's good that you are still at it and just learning to work with it. In addition to novels, you also write nonfiction. So which came first for you? And do you find one more challenging or perhaps more fun to write than the other? Novels definitely came first. In fact, I was that person who I always do things the hard way and backwards. You're supposed to begin a writing career small. You should begin with articles, get articles published, and grow like that. But I wrote a two-volume epic on the life of King David, a novel, two 
full-length novels that was really one story when I didn't know what I was doing. So writing fiction has always been my passion. Two nonfiction books really are partly fiction because they have elements of fiction in them. And I will always be a storyteller. So I think that nonfiction at its heart, the people that write it strict nonfiction, I'm probably not that person. I will... I don't know that I would ever write another nonfiction. I do like to write devotionals on my weekly social media. We have a, I do a verse of the week where I comment on it, and I'll add that to my blog so that others can see it too, which I forgot to do today. But anyway, <laughs> every Monday. Why I picked Monday, I'm not sure, but that's, that's about the only nonfiction when I write a blog post or a devotional that I'll probably do because I'm just too absorbed in writing the novels right now. I can't foresee anything else in the future. Story is a reflection of life. And so it seems really natural to me to include it in the nonfiction. You think about the way Jesus taught, he would say things like, if your brother sins against you, or when he was talking about, if you're on your way to court with your brother, he's almost like setting the scene for a really small story in the middle of his teaching. So he told parables. Those are stories. So he is the best storyteller. So we learn from him. Exactly. What is the best piece of life advice someone has ever given you? That was a tough question. But I did find a quote from C.S. Lewis that said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And I thought about that. And I was like, hmm, do I agree with that? And I do and I don't. Because, yes, you can't change the past. So I do agree with that. Can you change the ending? And that's tricky because we can only change ourselves. By the grace of God, we can change our reactions. We can change our actions. But we can change the way we think through God's helping us, through prayer and all that. We can change, but we can't change someone else. We can't change our circumstances. We can't make God change our circumstances. So we have to focus on what we can change. So it's like I can choose to praise God, to forgive others who hurt me, to love no matter what. So in that respect, I can change the outcome, hopefully, but I can't make other people like be at peace with me, as the scriptures say. I do my best and to please the Lord and to live at peace with all men. Changing the ending is really up to God. He knows what's going to come, and I have to be willing to accept that. I think that's a really good point. There's so much that goes around like on social media, people talking about how you can take control of your life and you make your choices. And this is true. We're not powerless. We can make our choices. Like you said, we can change ourselves, but we can't change everyone else. So no matter how much you may want to, for instance, repair a relationship, you can only do your part and then you leave it up to God. And it's finding that balance of knowing where your part ends, I guess, and then where you just let God take it from here. And sometimes you just have to accept that done what you were required to do. And that's all, you know, I think it can also depend on what kind of relationship it is. And in some cases, you just need to let it go. And if it's truly not something you can do anything about, but in other cases, I think you never give up praying. It's too important a relationship 
to let the to stop praying, especially when you're praying for someone to find the Lord or come back to the Lord. That's too important to ever stop. And I don't think we're supposed to. Absolutely right. Well, is there anything else especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us or perhaps something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? I want to springboard off what we just said. I have been lately focusing on worship and pondering it, meditating on it, thinking about it, whatever. And I was reading a psalm one day and it said, let all that is within me praise the Lord. And I I first got stuck on all and thought, all that is within all of me, every single part, my emotions, my mind, my will, all of it, I need to praise the Lord. But that first word, let, caught my attention. I have to make that choice to let everything within me praise God, even when I don't feel like it. Because other parts of scripture calls praising the Lord a sacrifice of praise. And in the New Testament, we're told to let the word of God dwell in you richly. We have a choice and we have to fight in this world. It's a battle to fight even for our joy because the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? And he wants to take that away from us. And when we're hit with life's toughest circumstances, it's really hard to find joy, really hard. So we have to choose. Am I going to surrender to the will of the Lord in this situation? Am I going to allow myself to seek him first, to love him with everything I have, to obey him, and to realize that his grace is all I need? Or we can choose to do things our way. We can cling to control that we don't have, that we might have thought we did, but we don't. We can give it up in depression, despair. We can complain about everything, which God really didn't like it when Israel did that, all that grumbling in the Old Testament. And But when we don't like life, I do it. I complain. And oh my goodness, that is not a good thing. And I realize that choice is something I have to make every day. And we all do. You're preaching there. <laughs> but you're right. We will be miserable. And I like what you brought in about letting ourselves praise him is sometimes a sacrifice because it's not that we're denying that something bad is happening or that our our life is a struggle right now but we're saying even though Mm -hmm. for this moment I'm setting aside that or I'm bringing even that with me and I'm still going to praise God yeah and it's really tough sometimes I've been down that road for a really long time up and down of course I think artists of any sort writers, whatever art you per, you pick your poison. But artists are more prone to the ups and downs of emotion. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest release, Daughter of Eden. Cool. <laughs> I'll go ahead and read the back cover copy for our listeners. The first time she opens her eyes, Eve gazes on one whose beauty nearly blinds her, whose breath is in her lungs. Her creator takes her hand and gives her to another like her, and yet different. Together, she and Adam experience pure joy as they explore Eden. Her favorite moments are when the creator comes to walk with them day after day. Then everything changes. Through one act of disobedience, Eve finds that her world is no longer a friendly place. With remorse in her heart, she must face the unknown future, the births, the deaths, the sacrifices, the loss of the only home she has ever known. 
perhaps worst of all, is the loss of trust, not only with her creator, but also with the man who shares her life. How will they ever survive out of Eden? Best-selling biblical fiction author Jill Eileen Smith imagines the life of the first woman to ever live, unspooling an epic story of love, loss, and the promise of redemption. I am so fascinated by the premise of this story, going all the way back to the beginning of time to explore this woman who was the mother of all living. Now, there are actually very scant details about Eve in the scriptures, especially her life after she left Eden. So how did you go about researching for this book? I research all books pretty similarly, but with them, it was different because they had to, it's like there was nothing there. Once they left the garden, which gave them everything, and they worked in the garden, I'm sure they, because we'll be working in eternity doing things God gives us to do. So I'm sure they had things to do, but it wasn't anything like what it was when they suddenly didn't know how to do anything. And they had to find shelter, and there was now fear of the animals who were no longer as friendly as they were. And there was, how do we make everything from clothing, which God had to make them, to like how to store things like pottery and weaving and One of the things I used, and I had to think about all the details, and so little by little I did as I worked through what they would have to do, but they didn't know how to smelt iron. They didn't know how to dig mine in the earth yet, so they had no tools to till the ground or plant seeds. I know people think that farming and all that began sometime, or I'm not sure, (laughs) because honestly I think God, the people that lived hundreds of years had all that figured out, it just got all lost in the flood. So we're not seeing what happened before the flood. But Adam and Eve lived a long, 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 long time to learn these things. But in the beginning, they didn't know that. So like one of the things I researched was the American Indian and how they they used every single part of a buffalo. If they killed one buffalo, they used everything inside that buffalo to put it to use for whatever they needed. They used like bones for needles and they used like the bladder for things. They used parts that could be made into carrying things like carrying water. They used the hide. They used everything. So in the story, when Adam is forced to kill an animal, it wouldn't all be as easy to go pick off a fruit tree. There would still be fruit trees, but I think it took them time to learn like how to press olives and make wine and raisins out of grapes and things like that. So it just, it all just, as I wrote it, more needs came up and I tried to incorporate that. So not only are you researching like how they might have done it, but you're also thinking about how would they have discovered it and when would they have brought that into their way of life? So yeah, a little similar to researching most books, but a little bit different in the framing of it. Absolutely. Eve was literally the only woman to experience a perfect marriage, which must have been a shocking change after the fall. So how does this play into your story? Well, they did have the perfect marriage, and so they'd never known conflict. They'd never known bitterness, and the first thing Adam does is blame Eve. And so his problem throughout the book is inability to forgive. He holds grudges. He has trouble with blame blaming her and others, and she has trouble with guilt 
because it's all her fault. She never should have listened to the that serpent. In this case, I have considered that he was actually a serpent angel, the fallen. And you'll have to read the book. <laughs> but anyway, I use I bring in the unseen realm so that we get a picture of what's going on in the heavenlies, how the Satan and his the demons that fell with him, how that happened, and why it all turned out the way it did. I would like to explore that, not change what happened, just try to figure out how and why. What it would have looked like from their point of view. Yeah, I actually do give Lucifer a point of view for a short little bit of time, but he's not a main character. He just, he's in the beginning. And because he was the one who went after them, he wanted to destroy the apple of God's eye. He didn't want, he wanted to hurt God. Yes. And he went after us to do it. And he's still doing that. His mm. tactics haven't changed any. He's not like creative. He just uses the same ones over again in different ways. And what a good reminder. It's like he wants to see us destroyed, but yet it's not necessarily about us so much as it is. He just wants to throw his sin in God's face, basically. Yeah, I think he, for some reason, and we'll never know why he began with hating God, except that he wanted to be like God, and then he wanted to be God. He wanted God's place, but he was a creature, not the creator. And so why he ever wanted that, only God and he know. But we can speculate how he felt once he fell from his position in the sense that he was angry, obviously. He's all the things we shouldn't be. He's a liar and he's bitter. And so he goes after God's people. He always has. And humanity was where he started because all he had was Adam and Eve. So Exactly. And it's cool how biblical fiction gives us opportunities to explore this. Daughter of Eden is your 16th biblical fiction novel. What drew you to this genre and what do you enjoy about writing it? When I was 16, I read a book called Two from Galilee by Marjorie Holmes, the love story of Joseph and Mary. And of course, as all teenage girls, at least back then, teenage girls tended to like romance stories, but this one was a biblical novel. And so I was reading it and I got to the end and I went, these people were real. And it was like a light went on. I'd been a Christian for eight years, but the Bible came to life for me after I read that novel. And I fell in love with the God of the Bible and all the stories in the Bible that he immortalized the people and told their stories. And just over time, that desire to to tell their stories now the same way, hoping that my stories will give readers that same aha reaction. These people were real. This really happened. Go back to the Bible and read where it says so and see what's true. Don't take my word for it because there's lots of parts in it that's fiction, but take what's true and realize that God wanted you to know that these people existed for a reason. Oh, I love that because it can be so easy to just read the scriptures, but it can feel so distant. feel like, I don't know, like a fairy tale or something like that, but through the avenue of fiction, you get to delve deeper into who these people might have been, why they might have made the choices that they made, and remind us that God has been walking with us for millennia. That's really cool. Oh, what are you working on next? I am in the final draft of Noah's Wife. That's the working title. And the story 
follows Daughter of Eden in a sense that some of the people like Methuselah are mentioned in both books. And Noah is born after Adam dies. His father was alive when Adam was still alive. Of course, he doesn't really show up in Daughter of Eden, but I tried to tie the two together. But anyways, it's about the flood. It's pre-flood. It's during the flood. It's after the flood. So we get to see the eight people as they're building the ark, or they're living on the ark with all these animals and surviving over a year in this floating ship. And then they have to start the whole world all over again in the Tower of Babel. And they happened at the same time. Well, the book isn't about that, but I want to bring in the points that let you see where it goes after the flood, after the world starts over and goes right back into sin again. You can't get rid of it. So no, can't get rid of that. So that's what I'm working on. I hope to turn it in very soon and then I'll start the next book. So cool. For our listeners, Jill is offering a copy of Daughter of Eden to enter the giveaway. You can go to our website, historicalbookworm.com and check out our giveaway page. And you will also find the link to the giveaway in the show notes for this episode. Jill, where can our listeners learn more about you? The best place is my website, jillaileensmith.com. You can sign up for my newsletter. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been so fun to discuss this book with you. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking with you and getting to know you, and I appreciate you asking. Now for a pinch of the past. So for today's pinch of the past, we are looking at the first female missionary who went to the Hawaiian Islands. Her name was Lucy Goodall Thurston, and she was there in the early 1800s. Oh, I'm intrigued. Hawaiian history is fascinating. Yes. And actually, I ran across Lucy in uh, this new book that I got at Goodwill of all places. I'm so happy with it. It's three inches thick and it is just an entire book of nothing but letters from women from the time of the American Revolutionary War until present. Oh, wow. Yes. And before each letter, it has a paragraph about the individual and what was currently going on in their lives. So like each war in our history that you can think of, you can go to that year because the book's in chronological order and find these women who were writing. Some were wives of farmers. Others were like wives of politicians and Mary Todd Lincoln. And oh, just so fascinating. I could go on. I'm going to post a picture on Instagram because it's really a beautiful book, too. What a great find. I mean, at Goodwill. Oh, it was like $7. (laughs) So I was really happy about that. So I just picked this one out. I'm not reading her letter, but when I read her letter and a little bit about her, I was like, this is so cool. So Lucy was born on October 29th in 1795 in Marlborough, Massachusetts. Her father, Abner Goodall, was a veteran of the American War for Independence. She attended Bradford Academy in Massachusetts, where she later taught. She married Asa Thurston, a Congregationalist minister, in 1820. In the first year of their marriage, they traveled to the Pacific as part of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. They were actually part of a larger group. And the missionaries there, they spent time building churches and schools and exploring the 
Hawaiian Islands. Interesting. So it's part actual mission trip and part reconnaissance for <laughs> what future missions might be going on, it sounds. Possibly. So Asa himself was one of the first men who translated the Bible into the Hawaiian language. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, many of the group just stayed for a few years and then went back to the States. But Lucy and Asa, they remained there actually for the rest of their lives. Lucy returned to the States to get her daughter settled into finishing school in 1840. She was away from her husband and the congregation for a total of three years. During that time, she was staying in New England and one of her daughters actually became ill and passed away. Aww. Lucy was devastated and she wrote, I retired and was alone with God. A simple thought passed into my mind. I will try to bear whatever he has laid upon me. Once Lucy returned to Hawaii, her husband's church had grown from 600 to 1800. The parishioners welcomed her and mourned with her. Lucy said that they knelt down around me and wept aloud, bathing my hands with tears. For several weeks, there was a continued series of calls, the kind-hearted natives coming by schools and by districts to welcome my return. That's amazing. They just embraced her and loved her and grieved with her. From what I've read, it sounds like she really had adopted, you know, the culture and she was part of the people. In 1855, after having five children, Lucy was diagnosed with breast cancer. Aww. And because her heart was weak, she could not undergo any topical or general anesthesia. Oh. So regardless, she had a mastectomy and lived for another 20 years serving as a missionary with her husband. Wow. Man, you talk about fighting. She fought and she got her 20 years. Whoa, what a lady. Yeah, she's really impressive. Actually, in the time that she was in Hawaii, she went back to the States only twice, and that was to get her children settled into school. And the second time was to buy a pair of shoes, she said. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Needed a pair of shoes. That is interesting. So Lucy died on October 13 in 1876 in Honolulu, Hawaii Territory, less than one year after her husband. She left behind an autobiography, which was edited and published by her daughter, Persis G. Taylor and the Reverend Walter Freer, as The Life and Times of Mrs. Lucy G. Thurston. Oh, that's so cool. That she wrote it and that her daughter published it for her. Yes, she has a number of letters that I found online, along with the one I found in my book, <laughs> and then her autobiography. So Lucy was an everyday woman, just serving God and loving her family. She's not very well known, in fact. I had never heard of her among the female missionaries that I studied in Sunday school. But nonetheless, when we look back on her life as a whole, we see her faithfulness and kindness to others and how it touched lives. And I think it brings us an example of a woman who endures. Time for our bookworm review. The Mistletoe Countess by Pepper Basham. Will the magic of Christmas bring these two newlyweds closer together, or will the ghosts of the past lead them into a destructive discovery from which not even a Dickens Christmas can save them? Mistletoe is beautiful and dangerous. 
much like the woman from Lord Frederick Percy's past. So when he turns over a new leaf and arranges to marry for his estate instead of his heart, he never expects the wrong bride to be the right choice. Graceland Ferguson never expected to take her elder sister's place as a Christmas bride, but when she's thrust into the choice, she will trust in her faithful novels and overactive imagination to help her not only win Frederick's heart, but also to solve the murder mystery of Havensbrook Hall before the ghosts from Frederick's past ruin her fairy tale future. Today's bookworm review is brought to you by Christy Kay. If there's one thing Pepper Basham knows, it's how to write a swoony romance mixed with a heavy dose of witty humor, and in this book's case, even a helping of mystery. Basham's previous books have always consisted of standout characters a reader can't resist rooting and falling for. In The Mistletoe Countess, Basham stays true to her loyal followers. We meet the brooding Frederick, who is prepared for a dull life of loveless matrimony to save his estate. But then comes Grace, bouncing in to inadvertently flip his life upside down. And when her sleuthing imagination takes hold of a real mystery at Havensbrook Hall, hijinks and humor mix splendidly with danger as they work to become a loving marital teen and solve a murder. Readers familiar with Basham will note her trademark steaminess, sweet but also on the very warm side. There are several mentions of what God is doing in a character's life and the way it changes their thought process and leads them to accept certain pasts and future realities. This is all presented in an organic way and flows seamlessly into the story. As always, Basham's plots are solid, but her characters tend to steal the show to make her books truly memorable. Although this book takes place over the Christmas season, it's a book that would definitely be enjoyed year round. So how are you doing today, Darcy? Oh, I'm doing well. I have recently started a new job. I am working at a shop in Uptown St. Augustine, still the historic district, and it's a fair trade shop. So we sell like jewelry and clothing and other, you know, works of art from around the world. And we also sell things by local artists. So I I really enjoy talking with the tourists who come in and it's just a very pleasant place to work. So it's that's been something new and fun that's going on. How about for you? Well, I just went to the Oregon Christian Writers Spring Conference, and that was a lot of fun. It's just so nice to be able to be around other writers and go to some classes. So, and then they finally released it on the website. So I'm kind of excited. But the Cascade Christian Writers Conference, which is will be held in Oregon, I'm going to be teaching. Oh, yay! Summer. So, yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm going to be teaching about podcasting for authors of all things. Imagine that. Imagine you teaching on that. Yeah. So, I'm very excited. So, if any of our listeners attend the Cascade Christian Writers Conference, make sure to find me and say hello. Yes. And take a picture with Kylie so that I can see it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.